I think theology's for the clergy. I just believe in Jesus. Certain hermeneutics of eschatology demand an exegetical approach. I think you shouldn't question what you were taught in church. Isn't that blasphemy or something? Welcome to the broadcast, folks. How's that? That's bad, man, because we were just telling people that we have all this caffeine in us. And have you crashed already? <laughs> welcome welcome oh to the broadcast, I need, folks. I need to take it, it over. Is, it is very good to have you. This is Theology Unplugged. We are coming to you live again from the Credo House, right here, smack dab in the middle of the Credo House. That's right, yeah. So it's probably going to sound a little bit differently, but we are in the big airspace. I think we have 3,000 square feet or so in this big room. 3,200. Uh, 3,200 square feet. We're hoping to have uh, 4,200 real soon. Yeah, hopefully. And uh, yeah, so we we love being out here. I mean, both of us love being out in the big space. We have offices in the back, but... uh, but we love being out. We love being surrounded by the the communion of the saints, uh, living and uh, those who have gone before us. And uh, so excited to be here, and excited to be here with our brother in Christ. We have got Greg Kokel with us. He is uh, author, speaker, um, president, founder of Stand to Reason, str dot org. Uh, really excited to have you. You, Thank you, Michael. You call yourself an apologist? Yeah, an apologist. Okay. Got a Christian yeah, you know, apologist. Yeah, it's in some ways it's an unfortunate word because uh, too many people misunderstand it, mm-hmm. but it's kind of we're stuck with it. It means to make a defense. Mm-hmm. I like to think of uh, think of it as clear thinking Christianity or Christianity worth thinking about. I think that Christianity can compete in the marketplace of ideas if it's it's properly understood and it's properly articulated. And mm-hmm. so that's what I'm about, in, in, broadly put. But we, at Stand to Reason, we don't want to just uh, produce a, a kind of a bunch of th- good, clear-thinking robots. We're, we're trying to produce a certain type of individual that we call an ambassador. Mm-hmm. So an ambassador has a knowledge component. If you think of the role of ambassadors you know, representing sovereigns, they have to know something, but they, they also have to operate in a diplomatic fashion. There's a, there's a cleverness in, which the, in the way they communicate. There's a tactical wisdom. And there is also a character element that's really important because if you have an ambassador that's a womanizer or a drunk or something mm-hmm. like that or just plain rude, well, that dis, dis 86 is the message. You got to have somebody with knowledge. That makes most of your messages eighty six. I'm just saying, <laughs> dude, man, this caffeine. That's why I've been talking to you about that for a while, bro. This caffeine's taking you in a bad direction. Huh? <laughs> Unless, if are you serious? If you're serious, give me a give me a wink. We'll talk about it later. Okay. <laughs> uh, as I was saying, knowledge, wisdom, and character. And the way we characterize this as standard reason is building a person who has knowledge and accurately informed mind, mm. wisdom, and artful method and character and attractive manner. You talk a lot about tact um, and tactful approaches. Uh, You've got tactics, and this is is ways to have conversation, Mm -hmm. ways to respond, how to make, um, how to transition a a conversation from being just a knowledge-filled conversation to one that is actually getting somewhere. Mm -hmm. So I appreciate that. One of the things that we deal with a whole lot here in the Credo House, and I feel like the Credo House is a is a tactful approach. It is it is part of tactics. A lot of it has to do with whenever we are we are uh, disarming people, trying mm-hmm. to disarm people so that they can have a clear conversation. But one of the things I like about what you're doing here, and especially in your book, and I don't mean to just focus on this book, but it is uh, I think it's your latest book, and it's one of the ones that I uh, want to discuss here. 
But whenever we had the transition from the scholastic period to the to the time of the Reformation, during the time of the scholastic period, you had some classical education going on, which logic was a very, very big deal. Mm-hmm. Now, I think logic is a very big deal, but they put logic way before rhetoric. And it, and it was a time where you had people who, who were in the know, if you were in the church and you were a monk or you were a bishop or you were someone who was a, a part of the scholastic uh, crowd, you knew a whole lot, but your concern wasn't quite so much about how to how to get other people involved in this right. and what, how, to, how to communicate this to other people. And at the time of the Reformation, you had the humanists that were on the rise. Now, humanism at the time of the Reformation wasn't quite what we think of it Back today. Back to the sources. Exactly. Mm-hmm. But they were concerned first with rhetoric mm-hmm. and trying to get this out to the people. And so big part of their studies was, hey, we've done a whole lot of stuff over the years, mm-hmm. and, and we know a lot, and we want, we, but the problem is there's no preachers. There's no people, and that's why all the villages and towns were calling and saying, get us some preachers. We want preachers here. We don't have preachers. We have monks and and friars, and we have bishops that we probably haven't ever even seen, but we don't have any preachers. And that's why they had the Dominican order that everybody loved the Dominicans, because at least they know how to preach. Mm -hmm. That's where uh, John Tetzel was from. Mm -hmm. He was a Dominican. He was very, very effective. Mm -hmm. Not effective in a good way, because what the information he was trying to, to, to show the people was not good good mm-hmm. but that's what made the reformation a reformation is because everything was put in place for this tactical approach yeah. and being able to tell the people about it and make a movement mm-hmm. you talk about like you were talking about this earlier at the credo house and it's very fascinating to me the, these different levels uh there's there's this uh, uh level of uh the people who were in the 1960s that were apologists yeah Yeah. and then the second level and then the third level is go to the people with this Mm -hmm. i call it first second and third column yeah and i want you to explain that a little bit yeah that's uh it 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 is uh it is similar to what you've just described in a a certain sense but it, it is more to describe what i see the holy spirit doing in this country in the area of thoughtful christianity and when i became a christian in 1973 and and during that time there there just weren't many people that were that were doing this that were writing and offering a thoughtful approach to defending the faith probably for many people francis schaefer come to mind or josh mcdowell or john montgomery uh norm geisler and uh uh, um, walter martin gee that's about it you know those four or five men were really on the vanguard, if you will, and I call that the first column. And uh, when they were writing and teaching, there were a bunch of young pups wet behind the ears during the Jesus movement, like William Lane Craig and J.P. Morlin and Greg Kokel and you know, a whole bunch of other people where we were benefiting from these guys. We were getting trained, and as it turned out then, we end up being involved in our own more official professional enterprises that's passing this on. That's the second tier, um, the second column in the fight, as it were. And, the, and the, by the way, this, the second column was a lot bigger than the first column. Mm-hmm. There were dozens and dozens and dozens. And you think of people like Nancy Piercy, for example, and Oz Guinness and, and Gary Habermas and uh, just a whole host of people that mm-hmm. have been making their mark. But there's also a, a third column. There, are, there, is a whole, there is a whole generation, just as the second column was bigger than the first, the third column is, 
almost innumerable. And these are the people that have learned from the second column and from the first. But there are people in the local church with their boots on the ground that are making a difference in their local community. Uh, guys like me and uh, others that I mentioned, we're kind of bouncing around and mm. we're hit and run guys. And we write a book here and there or do a radio show or something. And we're kind of a uh, shotgun approach. But we're not making a commitment to a local enterprise. You guys, for example, your boots on the ground. You're making a, a, a difference right here in this community. We got mm. people surrounding us right now, listening to this live broadcast, and they're they're part of the third column mm. that are reaching people that the second column could never reach. And uh, when I think about that, uh, it really excites me because this is a, a massive number, and there are people really spreading all over the world, and it's this great growing cloud of witnesses in a different sense, not the ones who've hung up their cleats like we read about in in uh, Hebrews 12, but these are the witnesses that are on the ground witnessing with their life and their words that Christianity is worth thinking about. And that, that really excites me when I see that. Seems to be uh, a movement. Mm-hmm. Huh? Yeah, yeah. And we, we really sense that at the Credo House, too. I mean, things that I think people would have said you can't grow your church with uh, thinking. You can't grow your church with the doctrine. You can't grow your church by really uh, the strategic equipping type things. Uh, they'll be way too stale. And they'll be too dry. You know, you got to equip them with other stuff, more flashy stuff. And uh, and w- what we're really seeing is that those people that you that stereotypically people would say no, these young people that you're trying to reach, uh, we're seeing that they're being reached by just the yes. depth of their God. They're being reached by the fullness of their God and. And they're saying basically, let me loose on my God, and uh, and you won't be able to keep him away. Mm-hmm. And we see that at the Creed House too. Whenever we say, "Wow, we're going to teach about this topic that I think normally would have been crickets," uh, it, it's really we wasn't gotta, it funny. What have you taught on the top ten theologians? Yeah, <laughs> I can't. Like, I remember one day we were covering uh, Thomas Aquinas, yeah. and the room was full, and it was all these hipsters that were sitting on the you know the edge <laughs> of their seats taking notes. Yeah, you know? people and, standing wow. up, no seats yeah. ready, but. Uh, yeah, it, it is. It is a. It is an environment that I wish that we could we could put out on a loudspeaker and say, "I'm telling you, people do want yeah. this. Yeah. If you have the Spirit of God within you, you begin to grab a hold of these things and use your mind. And it is the most exhilarating thing because what you essentially do is you do what I did in in 2003 while I was driving down I-44." And I had just been engaged in apologetics. And I remember thinking to myself, I've been a Christian all my life, but this is the first time I say this is really true. Uh-huh. You know, beforehand, it's true. You know, all your life you grow up and, yeah, it's true. Uh-huh. I, I believe it. It's true. But then at this point, I remember driving down the road and I said, you know what? This stuff is really true. You know, it's funny you say that because I had a similar moment in my own life when uh, I had been a Christian for maybe a year and of course, I had given my life to Christ. I, I was I, I, everything had turned around. I'm going in a new direction. Uh, the paradigm had changed completely for me. Mm-hmm. But there was this sense that uh, uh, even though I'm giving it, there's this, there's this, you know, a certain uncertainty. And I and I think there are periods of that for every Christian in their life. But but for me, I was reading Francis Schaeffer, and one of his books, probably his trilogy. God who is there, he is there, and he is not silent. Escape from reason. You can buy those in one volume now. It's not easy reading probably for the rank and file, but for me, when I read that, I I remember setting my book down and looking out the window out over Westwood Village in Southern California, and I thought to myself, by golly, this stuff is really true. 
I mean, it's really true. And it was a deeper sense of conviction that I had of the of the legitimacy of the of the Christian view of reality, which is the way I put it right now. It's not just a religious club. It's not just a religious point of view. Mm-hmm. It is a take on reality. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Carrie? Um, I don't know if you covered this when I stepped out, but you, going back to the other question that you asked about the, or what you, the statement you made about the um, innumerable amount of people we have today that mm-hmm. are out defending the faith, I was just going to ask what you are finding are some of their greatest what do I find for people who are on the street, as it were, are the greatest challenges? Well, there are probably about four or five things I can point out real quickly that amount to the biggest challenges that, that we face in the context of our culture right now. The problem of evil is always huge, always, okay? And it's the easiest one to articulate. Now, I think that the problem of evil is not a good argument against God or any theistic view. It turns out to be a good argument for God. But that needs to be worked out. It's called classically the moral argument for the existence of God. But um, in, in any event, a lot of people take or think, take safe harbor in the problem of evil as a reason not to take seriously claims of, of Christians. Uh, another one is one I'm addressing tonight, and that is the issue of religious pluralism. Uh, the idea that there is a plurality of religions in the world, and how could it be that one religion is true and others are false. Now, I don't think a person who's asked it quite that way has thought about what they've said because my response is, how could it be otherwise? Because there's all religions conflict in major areas. They can't all be true. Somebody's, at, le- at least some of them are mistaken. Actually, most of them would have to be mistaken. Mm. That's not arrogance or intolerance. That's just simple math, <laughs> it seems to me. <laughs> Um, but that's an issue that needs to be addressed, and this is what we'll be talking about tonight at uh, Credo House. <clears throat> or I guess this, since this is going to be aired later, this is what I talked about last week. <laughs> Any event. Yeah, make, make us look like fools when we say <laughs> next week. Um, and uh, so the, the issue of uh, the reliability and authority of the, of the Bible is big. Uh, so you've got a lot of voices now that are claiming either Jesus was a myth. You have the, the recycled redeemer mentality. It's just an old myth that's been recycled in the person of Christ. There is a logical problem with that claim as well as a factual problem with that claim. I, I addressed that in an article I wrote by that title, Recycle Redeemer, but it's big. Uh, whether you can trust the New Testament documents, Bart Ehrman has made lots of, uh, mm-hmm. lots of commotion about that. Of late, and uh, and effectively, people do not. People are happy to see more titles that attack Christianity. Whether the the attacks are sound is a separate issue. Most people haven't read these books, but this is something that has traction. And um, I think the whole notion of uh, the Darwinian evolution is is big. Now, th- there is no direct connection with the the truth or falsehood of Darwinian evolution and theism in general or Christianity in particular. I'm not saying that there's no impact of that. I'm just simply saying it it might be the case that Darwin was right on everything and Christianity is completely true and God does exist. 
Um, now, I don't hold to Darwinian thinking. I think it fails on its own merits. But, but I'm just simply saying that there is no direct theological connection. Like if you can prove there is no God, well, then that pretty much deep sixes Christianity. Mm-hmm. Or if Jesus is just a myth, we're done for. You know, If there is no soul, what's the point? So well, those are strategies that go right to the heart of it. Darwinism is not an example of that. <clears throat> However, it seriously undermines the credibility Mm-hmm. Of uh, of theism and Christianity because a lot of people think that as uh, I think it was Richard Dawkins says Darwin made it safe to be an intellectually satisfied atheist mm-hmm. and so that becomes a bona fide obstacle much more complicated issue but uh, it does become a, 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 an obstacle so those good, things good. that I just outlined I what think about the uh, God players. of the Old Testament well that's there is another category of biblical complaints. Yeah. And this is one of them, <clears throat> the God of the Old Testament. Well, is this, basically, I don't want to follow an evil God type thing. Yes, and this is a, a, a huge complaint raised by Richard Dawkins in his book, uh, The God Delusion, which is a bit ironic and I think disingenuous since he doesn't, based on what he said in other parts of the book, believe in morality because he's a materialist and a Darwinist. And there is no place for immaterial, objective, moral obligation in a materialist Darwinian universe. It just doesn't fit. That's like trying to put a carburetor on a computer. They, they don't go together, okay? It doesn't do any work. Mm-hmm. But um, yet he makes this claim at one point, and then in another chapter he, in a very kind of lucid way, it's kind of a famous paragraph, he berates, mm-hmm. goes after the God of the Bible mm-hmm. uh, for his evil. This is, a, this is also rhetorically effective. Again, most people haven't thought through these complaints. And these things that are rhetorically effective sometimes are, in terms of substance and merit, they don't really take you very far. But this presumes that people have the ability to think through these things, and they don't. And people like Richard Dawkins um, and, and others of his ilk, and this isn't condescension, it's just meant to be an observation, they pray on people like this that are responsive to rhetorical appeals that are not thoughtful challenges. Rhetoric, once again. Yes. Um, I, I love your, your tactics approach, the Columbo approach, and I've, I've, I've been using that a long time just mm-hmm. on my own. And when talking to atheists, usually by asking them questions and getting their argument down, usually the base argument is an argument that I don't know the answer to, and I've, it's bugged me for a long time, I've never been able to find the answer to, and that is, uh, why does God require faith in his existence? I understand requiring faith in that he is who he says he is, and trusting him, but why would he require faith that he exists? And it seems like he goes to a lot of trouble to make sure that it isn't obvious. There's always... And, and a possible natural explanation. Or, okay, yeah. You know, uh, hiddenness. Right, hiddenness right, yeah, the hiddenness of God. And uh, that's what the question is about. Why does God require faith in his existence when there are there are arguments or reasons to believe that he doesn't? Why isn't, if this is so important, why isn't it more obvious, right? That's kind of the challenge. Um, now, I am sympathetic on one hand to this because there is this this uh, history, uh, or I should say, this tradition of uh, um, struggling with the issue of the hiddenness of God. But the hiddenness of God is not the same as like the flying spaghetti monster. 
you know, this is a caricature of God that atheists had put out, and they're saying, you're asking me to believe in a flying spaghetti monster kind of thing, for which there is no evidence whatsoever, but you just want me to believe. And I think this is the sense in which he used the word faith a few moments ago. We have to have faith in this God. And um, I don't think this is what's in view with, with faith at all. I don't actually use this word faith in normal discourse anymore, just because it's too easily misunderstood. Um, uh, it, 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 people add words like leap of and blind to the word faith subconsciously. So this is not what we're after, but it is the way the atheist crowd consistently, and I would say irresponsibly, characterizes classical Christianity. You believe in something you have no good reason to believe in. That isn't what the hiddenness of God is all about. Um, classical Christians understand and agree with Paul in Romans 1 that the evidence for God is is so clear that we are morally held responsible for rejecting it. The classical arguments of the cosmological argument in its many forms and the teleological argument in its many forms and the ontological argument, if you understand it, which I don't, or the moral argument, all of these are powerful characterizations of evidences for the claim the God, the Bible itself makes as revelation from God in the beginning God. So we have rational arguments that are very sophisticated. Whether they go through or not, you know, some people can take exception with that or not, but they're not nothing. We're not talking about flying spaghetti monsters here. We have revelation in which this so-called hidden God has spoken. He is there and he is not silent. That's why Francis Schaeffer titled his book in that way. He has spoken in a way that's measurable. He has not just spoken, he has acted in history in a way that's measurable. Mm -hmm. And this is why we look at the Gospels for their historical verifiability, which can be done, because God acted in history through the person of Jesus of Nazareth, rose from the dead, and this is all. So these are all lines of evidence to show that nobody is being asked to take a wild leap in the dark of faith but rather to take a step of trust based on the evidence. Now, is the evidence compelling to everybody? Well, no, it's not compelling to atheists. But that doesn't mean it's not compelling in itself. It just means that some people are not going to be persuaded by it. And then that raises the question, why not? Um, for an atheist, no. Uh, this is my own judgment. For, for most atheists, at this point of their non-belief or lack of belief, however they want to characterize it, nothing will be adequate. They say, well, if God would just come down and show himself to me, I'd go to God. No, you wouldn't. You'd go to a psychiatrist is what would happen. <laughs> well, and God also, you know, you can, you can very much believe in him, you know, and, and believe that he exists but not be committed to him in any sense. So he may yeah, well, come down and show himself to you, but you say, well, that's I'm not giving second, yourself over to him. That's it. another step. Just belief in God is not adequate, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. Because, But belief in God is a necessary step because you're not going to trust Jesus, who is the God-man, who did something to enable us to experience forgiveness before God for the crimes we've committed against him if we don't believe there is a God. So there's a logical priority to believing in God, but it's not adequate. But the belief in God is well-grounded in a whole, many lines of evidence so a person is completely justified 
in that belief without calling it a leap of faith. At and you all. know, I think one of the things that we can be is we can we can tell people that we are legitimately frustrated at the silence of God. And what I mean by that is we have a great hope that Jesus is coming again. And and the whole idea of the Christian worldview requires some degree of silence of God. We don't have this idea that man he 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 should be showing himself, and to to this guy over there he's showing himself all the time. You know, he's showing up at the doorstep, and every time he gets home from work, there's Jesus sitting on the counter uh, waiting for him, saying how how was your day and stuff like that. Whenever Jesus went, he he ascended into heaven, and the angels came down and said, "You're going to see him come back." It wasn't like you're going to see him come back in just a minute, yeah. or or you know, there, there's this implied worldview that we have with the ascension of Jesus and the waiting to, for him to come. And so, I mean, that's why Peter, whenever he says in in First uh, Peter uh, chapter one verse eight, he says, "Though you have not seen him, you love him." And the whole idea is our worldview is nobody has seen him, the, according to Peter. And so there is this silence, this 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 hiddenness of God. And though we have not seen him, we love him. Why? Because we are perfectly justified in understanding him, believing in it, not because we see him every day, but because he is left enough. Well, yeah. and I think from his perspective, too, we know from Jesus that when he is interacting with, with uh, Thomas, that he tells Thomas, you, know, you believe because you've seen, mm. but blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. So from his perspective, I think he, he marvels saying, I love these people that believe without seeing, mm-hmm. uh, that, uh, you know, they, th- with their free will and a step into the light, not a step into the darkness, but a step in the light, but they take that step. They don't, they aren't standing there saying, I have to put my finger in your side or I will not come to you, but saying, I'm coming to you and there's no other one to come to. You're the only way and I'm all in. And he says, man, blessed are you for, for not seeing, but having believed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, let me toss another thought in there. I'm glad you brought up Thomas because I think something else is going on here. What's curious about the Thomas incident mm-hmm. is that the very next verse, mm-hmm. John says many other signs, miracles, Jesus performed that are not written in this book, but these things have been written so that you would believe mm-hmm. that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and have faith in his name and uh, have life in his name. So some people have taken the, the, the Thomas incident as being contrary to apologetics. Like, see, Thomas wanted evidence and Jesus got mad at him for doing that. But that couldn't be the way Jesus intended it because John in the next line says, here's all this evidence. The whole book is filled with evidence as an argument. I think in, 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 in uh, Thomas's case, you have something else going on, and this really goes to your, your, your point. And that is the, that Thomas had just spent three and a half years with Jesus while he healed the sick, he cast out demons, he raised the dead. Fed th- five thousand at one time, and then four thousand t- at another time. It was unbelievable. He saw all of this stuff. Then Jesus predicts his death, predicts his resurrection. He gets crucified, and then all of Thomas's buddies, who he's been with all this time, have said, "We saw Jesus." And he says, "Nope, not unless I stick my finger in his wounds will I believe." Now this is a little bit much, it seems to me, and I think this is what what. Um, Jesus is abrading. You have all the good reason in everything that you've known and seen, and then you make this demand? All right, here it is. Put your finger in there. And shame on you, by the way, mm-hmm. at the same time. And I actually think this is the where a lot of skeptics are, that they look at all they, – they are privy to all of this evidence, and the best they can do is call it like a flying spaghetti monster kind of thing. I think that's intellectually dishonest. And um, one other thing that goes along with this, too, is it's not just the evidence in kind of a cold, rational sense, but there is 
what Christians have is the Holy Spirit. There is a subjective, ineffable element here. It's hard to explain. That's what ineffable means. It's, that That is real nonetheless. So we are not just trusting our emotions or our subjective experiences. We have evidences that ground these things when we're not sure. But there is this other element too. And so there is all of these reasons. And then as as followers of Christ, we, we, we know God. We know him. And even though he stays hidden, at times we'd like him to come up a little bit more aggressively and certain, we still know him. In fact, I think that's what Peter said. You know him, you love him, whatever. And so, anyway, that's another element here I didn't want to have missed. Yeah, definitely. Mm-hmm. Good stuff. Um, uh, and I, I think that he kind of stepped on you and corrected you. I'm just <laughs> I'm just pulling that out. You, you no, had your, I'm just your, adding another dimension no, to yeah, that. No, I, it, it, was, it was a nice way. No, just, uh, I, I don't I think so. I, I think I laid the foundation, and he you just know, built upon it. Right right uh, yeah, Jim. we were working as a team there, and you <laughs> yeah, just missed that. That's right. Well, listen, uh, speaking of working as a team, I mean, things just flew through here. This was great stuff. Yeah, um, stuff. We're already at the end of this broadcast, and we, we do want to uh, encourage you all to visit Standard Reason str.org if you have not been involved in his ministry he has got a podcast you can look for that on itunes i encourage you that's probably the way that most people will first get exposed to you Mm -hmm. but subscribe to their newsletter go to str.org subscribe to their newsletter i got a blog that uh, is put out melinda Mm -hmm. puts out uh, quite a few we have other well we have a god blog so to speak, uh, it, it has daily entries, and actually all of our staff at one time or another is making entries there. Mm-hmm. I seldom do, although people presume that if it's on our blog, I wrote it, but usually that's not the case. Mm-hmm. This is an opportunity for other people on the bench mm-hmm. to make their contribution, mm-hmm. and it's a fabulous contribution. Check that out. Check stuff. out uh, twi- Twitter uh, and STR Tweets. That's it. STR uh, Tweets. That- SDR tweets. That's uh, follow them at Twitter. Uh, check out these books as well. We've got um, uh, Relativism: Feet Planted Firmly in Midair and Tactics, which has uh, been the focus that we have been talking about. But get Tactics and and uh, both of these. Get them. But but take your small group through this because guys, listen. Here's the deals. We're we're trying to marry what we know with with an effectiveness in our approach. And if you don't do that, we're just going to be lost. We're going to be we're going to be. Uh, uh, ivory tower people who know a lot and we may be convicted and we all want to have that experience where we say this is really real but we want it to translate into something that's effective and and keep up with your rhetoric along with your logic and i think tactics does a great job of that so greg we really appreciate your ministry thank you michael appreciate you coming here flying love to come back hope we can do it again we sure will hopefully we'll get uh one of these planted in your area soon uh, a a credo house firmly planted in mid California. Right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, until next time, thanks Tim for coming and, and joining us, and we'll join back with Sam next time. Thanks so much, Greg, for being here as You're well. Welcome, Tim. My pleasure. You've been listening to Theology Unplugged. Visit our iTunes page by searching Theology Unplugged at the iTunes Store. All episodes are available as free downloads. Theology Unplugged is made possible by Reclaiming the Mind Ministries. Reclaiming the Mind Ministries is a listener-supported ministry. If you've enjoyed this session or benefited from it in any way, do consider partnering with us. For information on how to become a ministry partner and for a complete listing of ministry resources, visit the RMM homepage at www.reclaimingthemind.org. 
Thank you for listening and God bless.